Good morning as we head toward the holidays. Well, this program will be a very special show because we'll talk about not only shelter medicine, but also the link. A very serious topic, the link between abuse in households uh, to one another, which goes on far more than people talk about, and the abuse to animals that goes on far more than people talk about. We'll talk with Phil Arakow, one of the co-founders of the National Link Coalition. Dr. Jeanette O'Quinn is an associate professor of shelter medicine. That in itself should be a hard stop because what you do there is so incredibly important, but I'll circle back to that. The Ohio, Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. O'Quinn, shelter medicine, that is like the most unique and difficult job or one of them, I think, in veterinary medicine. Because so many of the animals that come in are traumatized. So many of the animals that come in are young and not protected from disease and therefore susceptible because of stress and because they're not vaccinated at that point. Uh, It's just a really tough job. And it's what, and you can explain this, It's what's called herd medicine in veterinary lingo, greatly speaking. It is tough. How did you get involved with shelter medicine? Well, um, like many veterinarians find their career uh, by accident. Honestly, I had just graduated from Ohio State 30 years ago, which is a little painful to say. But um, what what a great career it's been. Um, And I was looking for some experience in surgery, some experience in some other medical areas. Um, So I started to volunteer at a shelter. Mm. And I just fell in love with shelter medicine. I remember being so busy all day seeing dozens of animals and doing dozens of surgeries and then saying to the veterinarian there, what what are you going to do tomorrow? We did it all. (laughs) And she just laughed. She's like, we do the same thing. Again, only there will be more tomorrow than there was today. Um, intake numbers are so high into shelters, um, and certainly over the last 30 years, they have decreased dramatically, but they're still pretty high, and I think a lot of people are surprised to hear that. And you're right, um, we're dealing with herds, if you will, of small animals, and that's not something that a lot of veterinarians receive training on in veterinary school. We tend to think of small animal, companion animals as, as single animals or just a couple living in a home, and we're providing very individualized care. And then for our production species, cattle, sheep, swine, those, um, we're, we're providing individual care also, but within the context of the population health. And so what shelter medicine is, is both of those. It's mm-hmm. small animals in a population setting, so we need to always be um, managing that population to improve health and welfare, and that's the best way to keep them healthy and happy and to get them out the door as quickly as possible. Well, that's the goal, right? I yeah. mean, at the end of the day. Um, so... Without you, there's you've heard of veterinary cardiologists, mm-hmm. veterinary oncologists, uh, veterinary nutritionists, uh, all these specialties within veterinary medicine. Now, in part because of you, shelter medicine is exactly that. It is. It is a specialty. Um, it took some convincing and some time to um, to kind of bring the veterinary world around to recognizing what actually goes into being a shelter veterinarian. Um, a lot of folks thought was well, just small animal medicine, but like I said, it is, it is, but it's so much more than that. And we tend to be um, doing a lot of uh, disease control and prevention 
at a herd level, which is not something you're typically doing in small animal practice. We also do a lot of behavior work. Uh, veterinary forensics have been very actively involved in. Um, those kinds of things um, are all part of shelter medicine. Facility design, how we use that facility, um, what are our housing units like. Um, there's a lot of advances in the last 15 years in how we house cats and dogs in shelters. Oh, I'd say the last five years. Yep, that too. And in fact, you have new guidelines about all that. So if a shelter, or for that matter, rescue, uh, is following, or I suppose a, uh, a boarding facility, even pet store, though in my world they shouldn't be selling dogs and cats in the first place, but they should all be following your guidelines. And I want to talk a bit about those guidelines. I want to talk about space, for starters. So we look at space and shelters differently than we did some number of years ago. And we look at it differently for dogs compared to cats. Can you talk about this a little bit? Yeah, so uh, confinement stress is a real challenge in shelters. And uh, we we need to kind of think about what are our pets doing at home and how restricted they are in shelters as far as their ability to move, their ability to choose where they want to rest. Do they have enough room to stretch out the way they want to? Um, Originally, years ago, shelters were built for to get as many animals in as they could, right? They wanted to help as many animals as possible. And that's a great goal. Um, But we've shifted a great deal to we want to make sure that they have a good quality of life while they're in our care. And we can't house cats in cages that are the size of a microwave. It is just not humane. And so that's definitely part of the guidelines. Um, the ASV Guidelines for Standards of Care in Animal Shelters um, is, is a pretty extensive, uh, well-resourced document. And it kind of outlines what's unacceptable, what's ideal, and what we should be doing as a baseline, recognizing that there's a lot of different ways to meet those particular um, standards. And financial limitations that shelters realistically might have. Yes, absolutely. Um, It's interesting because one of the things, as you mentioned, is animals need more space. And we're um, really working towards multi-compartment housing. So they have an area where they can rest and eat and an area where they can eliminate and they don't have to sleep there. We don't want to have lunch in the bathroom. Our (laughs) cats and dogs don't want to either. So, How important also are hiding spots? Because, you know, so the thinking was, and I understand, you want those cats or dogs to be front and center so people can see them. They can't adopt what they're not seeing. You think of all the times you go to the zoo and the sign says snow leopard. You look, you look, you look, you don't see a snow leopard. And then you might see a tail in the corner underneath something that turns out to be a hiding spot for that snow leopard. Our dogs and cats need the same sorts of hiding spots, don't they? Cats and dogs absolutely need the opportunity to hide. Um, They're on public display. There's a lot of activity and things going on. Sometimes they can see other animals or hear other animals and, and maybe not see them. And they're more comfortable when they're hiding. It's a great way to reduce stress for those animals. And um, you bring up a good point, and that has limited hiding places um, for a long time because people want them to be seen so that they can go home. But what we've found is that uh, cats with an opportunity to hide are more likely to come to the front of the cage and interact with people when they approach the cage and solicit attention. So um, it's not been a barrier at all, but it certainly um, provides a lot more comfort for the cats when their stress levels are reduced. They're more likely to come out and interact. They're more likely to play. They're more likely to exhibit behaviors that we like to see our cats displaying. And the same with dogs. 
Um, with dogs, it's a little bit harder. Um, little dogs, I suppose you could have a, a place for them to hide in, but the larger dogs especially. And one of the things we've been recommending is a partial screen over the front of the door. So we don't want to block visual access completely because then you end up with dogs who are very curious and are just jumping all day because they want to see what's <laughs> going on. Um, but if we can block part of it, then mm-hmm. they have a choice. And choice is so important for cats and dogs uh, and for people. <laughs> well, yes, actually, yes. And I I hesitate only because I talk about enrichment at veterinary conferences like this. Mm-hmm. We're at the convention of the American Veterinary Medical Association and when I began talking about enrichment, dare I say, decades ago at these conferences, I had to describe what enrichment is. Today, people know what that is. But no one would have thought about enriching the lives of shelter animals. Now, that is a thing. And it's a great thing because the community can even get involved. We'll talk about that when we come back with Dr. Jeanette O'Quinn on WGN. Dr. Jeanette O'Quinn is an associate professor of Shelter Medicine at the Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine. We're talking about how shelter medicine has changed dramatically. First of all, it's here. You know, what, 20 years ago, most shelters didn't even have a veterinarian. It was considered a luxury. I I would argue, to some extent, it kind of still is considered a luxury. It absolutely um, is certainly limited by resources. Yeah. So larger shelters, shelters with more res- resources tend to have shelter veterinarians and on in bigger staff cities and in bigger cities. Yeah. But there are a lot of ways to have a veterinarian involved in your shelter and every shelter should have a relationship with a veterinarian. It can be a community practitioner. Uh, maybe they're on the board. Maybe they're just um, hired to do some work on protocols and, and, and see animals when they're, when that's needed, but there should all always be some relationship. And I've seen a lot of shelters who have part-time veterinarians who come in two days a week, maybe to do surgery or to examine animals. There's a, there's a lot of ways that you can get that, um, that very essential component of having veterinary input into animal care and welfare in shelters. So if your great, great, great grandmother had written the guidelines that the shelter veterinarians now have out for animal shelters and other institutions that home or house a lot of pets at the same time, rescues, that kind of thing. Uh, I don't know that there would have been anything in there on behavior. And now it's understood that the welfare of animals is benefited and behavior problems can be prevented. And that's so important because, for one thing, if there are behavior issues that is likely then the pet is having anxiety issues simultaneously. And when the pet goes home, behavior is one of the big reasons, if not the biggest, why the animals may come back to the shelter. So if you can avoid it, so it's important. And enrichment is important as well along those lines. And I love it when shelters involve the community and they have school groups come in to make products or toys for the animals, that kind of thing, which is truly enriching for the animals, but it's a way to... Uh, get the community involved with the shelter as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's uh, there's so many creative ways to provide enrichment, and there are so many ways to involve um, civic organizations, school groups, and, and other members of the community. Um, just a few that I've seen, and I, I kind of collect them because I'm I'm just always love to hear the stories. Um, 
speaking of stories, one of the one of the popular things is to have kids come in and read to the animals. Yeah. They're so used to like going for walks and getting treats and and those are great. They need to have that physical activity, but it's a high energy. And so then they start to learn that when they see people, something exciting is going to happen. They start jumping and barking. And that then can lead to people walking past saying, I don't want that very energetic dog. Um, so quiet time is really important. And so having somebody come in and just sit down and read, and I've seen like, you know, second graders, very soft spoken, sitting in the middle of the floor, and a dozen dogs leaning in, <laughs> listening, and you can hear a pin drop in that room. Um, but it's great that they get some opportunities to read and the, the dogs get some enrichment that's that's not high energy. At Chicago Animal Care and Control, what they've done more than once, and I think other shelters have done this too, is have someone in the case of Chicago from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra come in. Oh, I and, love that. And play a violin. Yeah. And play a concerto for the dogs. Mm-hmm. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. I love it. And when we think about enrichment, we need to engage all of the senses, right? Yes. So sound is one. We can play music or we can bring even better live music in or stories. We want to engage their sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a shelter in Ohio that has a lot of hound dogs. And uh, one of the people who works there has pet rabbits. And so she'll throw a towel in with the rabbits <laughs> and then give that towel to the dogs. Yeah. You've never seen a happier dog than a beagle with a rap- with a towel that smells like a rabbit. Yes. And they just sniff and sniff and sniff. And so it just keeps them busy and, and active. So just those extra one, things. One study that I read that kind of opened my eyes because I had never thought about this are dogs that are kept. And I don't remember what the data specifically is. But dogs that are kept at animal shelters for some period of time actually suffer hearing loss. They can. Noise is a a real challenge in shelters. We need to be able to disinfect, um, which often means hard surfaces. And hard surfaces bounce the noise around, and it can hurt uh, human hearing as well as animal hearing. And if you think about it, um, their their hearing is much more sensitive as ours. And so if it hurts our ears, it definitely hurts their ears. Uh, There are studies that show... Um, hearing loss due to long-term noise exposure. Unfortunately, there are a lot of ways that we can minimize that in shelters and reduce the sounds. And enrichment is one of the ways to do that, to provide other things for them to do. So if the dog is busy chewing on something or Mm -hmm. sniffing something, the dog is not barking. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's additions we can make in the facilities to help reduce that noise bouncing around as well. Um, One of the things we recommend in the guidelines, too, is smaller rooms, so fewer animals. I know some shelters are already built, can't do much about that. But um, if you're doing a new build, multiple smaller rooms are are much more conducive, Uh, less disease transmission, less noise, lots of benefits from that. What about the controversy of cats, do you keep them together with other cats or single cats? Depends unless on the they're cat. unless they're of course if they're litter mates. Yeah, so litter mates ideally you want to keep together. Yeah. Um, if it's a huge litter, you could divide them, but into half. But you want to keep them with their litter mates. Same way with uh, puppies and kittens. Um, co-housing in shelters is it can be really beneficial and it can bring in a lot of challenges with disease transmission and behavior issues and things like that so it needs to be very carefully selected and very carefully monitored and we should never be just randomly housing animals together that have never met we need to carefully select them introduce them do some screening first for cats um, we recommend no more than four to six adult cats in an enclosure Mm-hmm. And that's that is really important. We start and I and so many places have a lot more cats than that living in an enclosure. Um, but it's very, very stressful for the what, cats. What about cat cafes though? Because inherently 
you're going to have more than four to six there. And your guidelines also extend out to such organizations. And they would argue, and I can see it, you know, that they also use height. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if it's a, it depends on the size of the room, but let's say it's a room as large as we're in or larger, which mm-hmm. you can all see on the radio, I'm sure. And, and, but if there's cat trees and if there's ledges and if there are hiding spots, multiple, multiple ledges, multiple hiding spots, multiple cat trees, et cetera, right. are you a little more flexible? Certainly vertical space can help any situation, any group housing situation. And it should be there, um, not just for enrichment, but, um, cats require it. cats, cats yeah. really require that. Yeah. yeah. But we need to think is giving them more places to hide the best way to deal with the stress of being surrounded by too many other cats. They're very territorial. Actually, they prefer small groups and it's stressful for them. And that's kind of what it comes down to. So for the cat cafes, what we would recommend is maybe have dividers and have a couple mm. smaller areas that people can go into or rotate the cats. So he brings some out and then put them away to rest. They don't want to be on display all the time either. And then bring out the next group of cats. So there's a lot of ways that you can work around that, I think, and still meet that requirement. And and the bottom line is if the animal, dog or cat, is not stressed, that animal at the end of the day will achieve the goal that we all want, and that is to be adopted. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Jeanette O'Quinn, thank you for the amazing work you've contributed to veterinary medicine, shelter medicine specifically. Always good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You can email questions to steve at stevedale.tv. Every once in a while, I'll pull a question out, and this one fascinates me. Can dogs recognize us by smell alone? What do you think? Well, I know they can. Oh, not only, I looked it up, I cheated. Studies confirm that they can, but think about it. If they can smell what's going on inside us, I'm talking about cancers. I'm talking about a pregnancy. Dogs have done that for eons, right? So it's clear that dogs can and do recognize us, I think, by smell alone. So here's an example. Leave the house. Come home. And I'm talking about not leaving the house for a year. Leave the house for 20 minutes and come back, and your dog is very happy to see you. Your dog knows it's you. You see the tail wag, and the dog recognizes you, and maybe you have a dog that isn't so happy when strangers walk in the house. I mean, you know your dog knows it's you, yet your dog will sniff you to confirm. Aha! Phil Arkow is the co-founder of the National Link Coalition, a very important organization. Any organization that has to do with the human-animal bond, to me, is very important, Phil. But this organization discovered some things that some people might have thought about but wasn't previously proven. So let's go back. Go back a couple steps and go back in time. What is the National Link uh, Organization? Well, the National Link Coalition, Steve, actually focuses on what we call the dark side of the human-animal bond. And for all the work that uh, so many of us have done over uh, decades promoting the the benefits of of pets to human health and welfare uh, and the advantages of of, uh, pet well-being, there is a dark side, which is animal cruelty, abuse, and neglect. And there are any number of people out there who are just really upset about how animals are mistreated. And that's wonderful that there are so many animal lovers out there. The problem is when they try to do something about it, they often run into a barrier. The legal system, the courts, city and county governments, state governments, 
generally tend to trivialize animal welfare as an insignificant issue because they say, oh, well, animals aren't as important as people. Well, the National Link Coalition refers to the link between animal abuse and human violence. And if you go back to the roots of where animal cruelty prevention started, and philosophically it was hundreds of years ago and legislatively it was in the 19th century, the roots of animal uh, protection have always been not so much that it affects the animals, which of course it does, but how it impacts people. And the National Link Coalition came along in 2008 to draw attention to the fact that animal abuse rarely occurs in a vacuum. It almost always indicates some other social or financial or family problem and very often can escalate into child abuse, domestic violence, or elder abuse. And our motto is very simple in describing how these four forms of family violence are linked, which is that when animals are abused, people are at risk. When people are abused, animals are at risk. And legislators, prosecutors, and courts are much more likely uh, to take animal cruelty seriously when they recognize the pragmatic approach that not only does it hurt animals, but it also hurts people. All right, so let's let's go back a little bit uh, to what I began to say. Yeah, it is the dark side of the human-animal bond. That, that is true in some ways. So here we have a family that loves their dog, say it's a dog, and are very bonded with this dog, but there's a member of the family, and usually it's the man in the household, though not necessarily, but usually that's the case, that begins to abuse the dog. Well, right there... By the work that your organization has done, you've shown that, that that means next, what is likely to happen? Well, if it's left untreated and left unaddressed, it, the guy can think, oh, I can get away with this, I can get away with something else. And uh, it's a case of, you know, like the broken window theory in law enforcement. You know, if you let something slip by, then people think they can get away with something. Animal abuse doesn't always lead to human violence, but very frequently it does. Actually, more often than not, animal cruelty follows some other crime uh, against people. They're just uh, connected in what we call the link, and they're just uh, there's just this web of antisocial behaviors. And so we're encouraging the public to recognize uh, animal abuse and respond to it. And what we're really doing is training professionals in a lot of different fields, to uh, report animal, uh, be on the lookout for animal cruelty, and to report it to the appropriate agency in their community. Uh, and similarly, to have animal control officers and humane officers uh, report suspected child abuse, domestic uh, violence, or elder abuse to those agencies. So we're all on the same page, and we're all working together to protect all the vulnerable members of the family, whether it's whether they have two legs or four. All right, so you've been doing this a while, and you allude to something exceedingly important. And here is one of the differences that your organization has made. Now, I've already touched on one, and that is to demonstrate that the link, which is now an official term, by the way, if you talk to law enforcement, increasingly, most, I would argue, law enforcement people around the country know that term. They know what it is. And when you first began, 
There was no science to demonstrate everything you're saying now is truly the case. Today we know that there is science to demonstrate that everything you're saying is truly the case. But along the way, professionals have become more aware. And with that, so is the culture at large, because of your organization, I would argue. And in some places, laws have changed. It's a lot to talk about, but can you talk about all that? We have made incredible progress in these last 15 years by focusing not just on how animals are harmed, but how animal cruelty is linked to human violence. We now have all 50 states with some laws protecting animals that are felony level. Sex with animals is now illegal in 49 states. We have 42 states in which veterinarians are either required or permitted to report suspected animal abuse. And that goes back to what we got us started with this whole idea, which the idea that veterinarians should be as proactive in responding to animal cruelty as physicians are in responding to child abuse. We have 39 states now in which pets can be included in protection orders and domestic violence cases, and we now have over 300 pet-friendly domestic violence shelters in the United States that can keep the entire family together for the healing powers of that human-animal bond. We have seven states now in which uh, a court in a divorce settlement can award custody of the family pets based on what the court feels would be in the animal's best interest. Um, so, I mean, those are just some of the examples of you know the legislation that has been passed by this recognition of the link and what the National Link Coalition has been doing to advance these laws and the academic research substantiating it. All right. Phil Arkow is the co-founder of an important organization that you probably haven't heard about, but now you're hearing about it, that has meant so much in so many different ways. And I still maintain, at the end of the day, you guys are about supporting the human-animal bond. That's the National Link Coalition. We'll be back with Phil next on WGN. Phil Arkow is the co-founder of the National Link Coalition, how did this all begin in the first place, Phil? Well, in my case, it was back in the 1980s when I was doing a training for teachers in Colorado, where I was at the time, and I asked a local veterinarian who was talking to the teachers if he had to report child abuse, and Colorado was the only state in the country at the time where veterinarians were child abuse uh, mandated reporters, and then I asked him, if he had to report animal cruelty to us at the Humane Society, and he said, no, why would I ever want to do that? I might lose a client. And from that simple beginning, 25 of us got together in 2008 and started this organization, which is now a nonprofit. We're open for uh, donations. Visit our website. It's nationallinkcoalition.org. And the link, that's L-I-N-K, refers to the fact that animal cruelty doesn't occur in a vacuum. It's linked to child abuse, to domestic violence, and to elder abuse. And by getting these four areas of family violence working together, by getting the professionals in those four fields all on the same page, we can all do a much more effective job of not only protecting animals, but protecting people. And that's a message that legislators and judges and prosecutors uh, understand much more effectively than just focusing on the animal aspect. 
And when you began all this, animal shelters didn't talk about it or had no idea. Veterinarians didn't talk about it or had no idea. And legislators in general had no clue. And and you provided data to demonstrate the reality. But let's talk about one elephant in the room that I think people, Phil, would want us to talk about, and I don't want to be remiss. Sadly, there's more mass killings in America than anywhere else in the world, I believe. Mm-hmm. And Yep. And, and I mean, it's I mean, the simple answer that has been around for centuries. Yes. Little boys who start out hurting people, uh, hurting animals, going to hurt people. And that often happens, but not always. And then the next thing that came out was all these mass shooters and all the school shooters started out torturing animals. Well, that's not quite true. About 10% of them did. Uh, That is still a very significant risk factor and a very significant warning sign. And, in fact, the FBI... Uh, and the National Counterterrorism Center came out with a report a couple years ago now that says that animal cruelty is not only a warning sign of fam- potential family violence, but also of terrorism. Yeah, it's, it's an absolute, as they say, red flag. And even if it is only 10%, and that number, I, I think you'd agree, is pretty squishy, nobody knows for sure, for sure, what that number is, because the data does range a bit. But let's say... It is only 10%. I'd like to think it is as low as 10%. Many say it's higher. My gosh, if we can intercede in 10% of mass shootings, that would be incredible. And that would, in of itself, would make a difference, not only for the human beings that are clearly not going to be shot if we can intercede, what's more for the animals, because then other animals aren't abused as well. That is absolutely correct. So it's up to early intervention, and what we're doing is training uh, social workers and physicians, child protection workers, uh, adult protective services uh, agents, uh, law enforcement, uh, to look for animal cruelty. It's like the sign of the airport. If you see something, say something. And then to report it to the appropriate agency in their community. But it works to, uh, both ways. We're training animal control officers to report suspected child abuse or elder abuse or domestic violence. We're training veterinarians to make these reports as well so that um, we're all working together. The problems of family violence are too big for any one sector to uh, solve on its own. But by getting the public involved, you know, great people like you and and your radio programs, we can um, make great progress. Have you seen a a jump? I I think I saw somewhere that the epidemic within the pandemic is domestic violence. I think that was the wording that I read in in a story. Is that true? Uh, As best as we can determine, domestic violence increased dramatically during the pandemic uh, for many reasons. Uh, Families being trapped together under closer uh, contact. Uh, the woman not having access to uh, a telephone to be able to uh, make a call or to escape. The animals were tortured uh, as well as a way to intimidate uh, the children and the the women in the families. And it's usually a man doing the abuse in a domestic violence situation. So, yeah, the uh, pandemic really made things worse. Meanwhile, the shelters were all under lockdown and couldn't accept uh, as many uh, people as before. 
Animal shelters, you know, were forced to empty uh, their shelters out as well uh, due to, you know, COVID concerns. So, yeah, it really affected everything, and we're still living with the aftershocks of that. So when you be- what we're- go, ahead, go ahead, Phil. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but, you know, we're, we're working through all that with the National Link Coalition. I'd encourage your listeners, visit our website, nationallinkcoalition.org. You'll find plenty of information. It's all free. We have a free monthly newsletter. Uh, and if you'd like to uh, learn more about it, just uh, visit us, and uh, we'll be pleased to uh, get you involved with us. So since you began all of this, there have been monumental changes. But I will tell you, to date, if I were to call Animal Care and Control, because I suspect that across the street from where I live, there is someone abusing a dog, depending on where I live. I think part of this now depends on geography, but maybe I'm wrong. No, you're quite right. Yeah, there, there would be no answer. So while we've certainly made incredible progress, seems to me that we have a ways to go. We have a long way to go. One of the things we did was compile the only national directory of who people should call to report suspected family violence in 6,500 cities and counties in the U.S., and it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, in any state, there's one number to call to report child abuse. There's one number to call to report domestic violence. There's one or two numbers to report elder abuse. But there can be 600 different numbers to report potential animal cruelty. Nobody knows who to call in their uh, community because mm-hmm. there is a national system. Okay. I, I think it was Dr. Melinda Merck, who I know you know, uh, mm-hmm. who told me that uh, we, because I asked her, who gets abused more often, dogs or cats? And because it's a question that I had gotten from a listener. And she said, of course, we don't really know because so much animal abuse goes unreported. However, I suspect she said cats because they're smaller and it's just easier to abuse them. And sometimes that doesn't even get reported because they are cats. And in some places, they're not cared about in quite the same way dogs are. Would you agree with that or not? Yes, I would agree completely. Uh, We don't know how many cases there are. One of the things we have uh, worked with other agencies on since 2016 is getting the the FBI to start compiling a national database of cruelty cases. So we're we're getting some data there. Um, But cats are not given the same general, you know, uh, affection and, and regard that by most people that dogs do because dogs are perceived to be more socially uh, interactive than cats. Uh, there are many uh, jurisdictions in this country where uh, animal control is not even allowed to handle cats. They're just dog wardens. Uh, they're not uh, empowered to do anything with cats at all. Um, so, yeah, the cats don't get the same level of protection for a number of different reasons that dogs do. Okay, Phil Arkow, co-founder, National Link Coalition. Amazing work that you have done. I am honored to be a small, small part of your organization. Again, one more time, give the website. NationalLinkCoalition.org. Easy enough. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Steve. So this study is fascinating as we're about to travel with our pets. More people do that than ever before. Around the holidays, over a thousand people from a website called Upgraded Points. Interesting website, by the way. 
uh, looking at points. If you travel a lot, you might be interested in this website. But anyway, they, they asked not only people with pets, but people without pets. For example, on traveling with a pet, pet owners, two-thirds of them, people with pets, say they'd rather bring their pet wherever they travel, if possible. Among non-pet owners, one-third of those are uncomfortable sharing airplanes with pets in the same cabin. On traveling with a pet versus a child, this is my favorite one, pet owners. Over one in four pet owners say they would rather travel with their pet than their child. (laughs) I love that. Non-pet owners, nearly 60% of non-pet owners would rather sit next to a pet on a plane than a child. Those are people who don't have a pet, and they are still saying, I would rather sit next to a pet than a kid. On road trips, most pet owners, 70%, would prefer an eight-hour road trip. That's a long time in a car compared to a two-hour flight. Part of the answer for that, I'm guessing, is because a lot of dogs are just too big to go in the airplane in the cabin. For non-pet owners, just over half of non-pet owners would prefer a two-hour flight next to a pet compared to an eight-hour road trip with one. As for pet travel policies, uh, 26% of pet owners are passionate about advocating for stronger pet-friendly travel policies. And I'll tell you more And more hotels and motels and such are saying, yeah, we are pet-friendly. They may charge you for it, however. Interesting survey. More on my website, stevedale.tv. We'll talk to you next week, bright and early, on WGN.